seems like forever since I've been up here last, but it's good to be here. I, I'm going to start off with a question. Um, so I don't want anybody to see anybody else's answers, but I want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. I'm going to ask you a quick question. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So listen to the question very carefully. In regards to believers, followers of Jesus Christ, we are commanded, if you believe this is true, I want you to raise your hand. We're commanded in Scripture to judge one another. Raise your hand. All right, cool, cool. I wanted to see how hard I had to work today and how hard the Holy Spirit has to work, which is pretty hard. So hopefully we can look at today's lesson. I want you to see it through a whole different eyes. Jason was right. This is one of the most misunderstood and misquoted scriptures. Everybody outside the church knows two scriptures, and they both get them out of context, and they both misquote them. The first one is, money is the root of all evil, right? They all say that. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. This is the second one that that happens with. It's most, it's kind of understanding because whenever you're talking to someone, it's the great deflector of any conversation where you're trying to address moral moral or spiritual objectives, right? It's the thing that they say, hey, whenever you're talking about truth and morality, judge not. Do not judge me, right? You hear that all the time. I just heard it last week. In the conversation I was having, you shouldn't judge. And so my response was, well, well then why are you judging me for judging you? <laughs> Didn't work too well, but hey, it was worth doing, right? And here's the problem. Whenever people use that verse, they don't do it as we're called to in 2 Timothy, which says we're to present ourselves to God as a worker who need not be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth, right? That's not how they're presenting it, right? They're not a worker. They're just using it to get you off their back in most cases, right? But here's the funny thing. I was reading an article in Psychology Today, and one of the things they said is that we are designed, we are wired to judge. We're, our brains are, are wired to judge everything, and quickly, you know, we're, we're able to ascertain things. And the article went on to say something that was kind of cool. It said that we look at two attributes when we're judging. Situational attributes, you know, circumstances, events, and things, people in the situation. And then personality attributes, the person who's the, the focus of our judgment. And the interesting thing about that article was they said, look, if you don't know the individual, which is kind of weird, you tend to focus more on the situational, I mean, excuse me, you tend to focus more on the personality attributes of the individual. So it doesn't make any sense. If I don't know the individual involved, I tend to focus on that versus the situation. But if I do know the person, I tend to focus on the situational attributes and not the personality ones. Let me give you an example. If I met someone and we were talking, they said, hey, give me a call. And later in the week, I gave that person a call and they didn't call me back because I didn't really know them I would focus on the personality and I would say, how rude, they didn't call me back. They just blown me off. But if I knew that person, I'd probably say, oh, I know so-and-so is real busy and they're going to call me eventually. kind of changes how you look at things, right? It's, it's kind of a weird thing how God has sort of wired us as individuals. And so the other dynamic of it, I read, is that we get some pleasure out of judging, don't we? In some regards, we enjoy it and I think there's two reasons why we do that, right? I think there's two reasons why we enjoy judging others. The first one is envy or jealousy or FOMO, whatever you want to call it, right? We see people doing things that, in our judgment, we shouldn't be doing, but we're kind of jealous that they're able to do it because it's kind of fun. 
sin is kind of fun if it's done right until it leads to you know, some kind of addiction or something like that. And we see people doing things. We see people drinking, having a fun at a party, and we're thinking, oh. Or somebody having sex before marriage. And you know, there's all these different things that we make judgments for ourselves that other people are doing that sometimes we're jealous that they're doing them. The second reason I think this is most prevalent amongst followers of Christ is self-righteousness, right? It's interesting because my definition of self-righteousness is pretty simple. It's where self-righteous people minimize God's holiness and maximize their own holiness. In other words, we realize in Scripture, the Scripture tells us that we have no righteousness of our own. It's imputed to us by the blood of Jesus Christ by the way of the cross. Right? So we should never be righteous, self-righteous, because we have none. It's all what God has given us. But yet we do that all the time because we want to feel better about ourselves and other people. I think self-righteous people, knowing that, are ignorant and arrogant, right? They think themselves better of other people. It's interesting, because this isn't a dynamic that we just find out today. We go all the way back to Jesus' time with his disciples. He sent James and John into Samaria to check out and get it ready for his arrival, and they rejected him. So when James and John come back to see Jesus, what did they tell Jesus to do? They said, Jesus, rain down fire on them and consume them. Can you action that? Take them out because they rejected. Now, Jesus doesn't do that. He makes a judgment call of his own. But it's interesting how ignorant and arrogant we are when we look at who we think we are. And that brings me to the third point of self-righteous people. They tend not to be very self-aware, right? They tend not to get downwind of themselves that often. And that's why they're able to look at people and enjoy judging other people. I, I love the story of a guy who and his wife who were, who were big art people, and they were going to a gallery with all their friends, and he was always the one that would make comments on the different exhibits, and he was standing in front of this display, and he, he, he left his glasses at home, and his wife said, should we go back and get them? He goes, no, I can make do. I mean, he could barely see him really on hand in front of his face, but he thought, I'm just going to be talking about abstract art. I can make it up as I go along. And as he's standing in front of that display, he says, oh, my gosh, what a hideous, what a hideous display. Why would anybody ever paint this? This artist must be dark and demented to paint something so disgusting, at which time everybody around him started laughing, and his wife whispered in his ear, honey, you're looking into a mirror. <laughs> he was unaware of who he was and what he was doing. How often do we, does that happen to us, that we're so unaware? We, we're blinded sometimes by our own prejudice, our bias, our experience, our history, our traditions, And we're unable to see the things that God wants us to see. And frankly, a lot of times when we judge people, we judge them with a very critical spirit. It's amazing how many people are happy that there's a hell. Isn't that funny? They're happy there's a hell. To me, I think it's, you know, one of the things that we always hear Christians saying it all the time. Oh, Lord, please come quickly. Please come. But yet we don't realize when Jesus comes, he's going to divide the wheat from the tares. And some are going to go into eternal life with Jesus, and the rest are going to go into eternal torment. That should frighten us all. And we should have fear for those who stand condemned already. I think when we look at our spirits, when we come to this passage, and we kind of look at things, it says, judge not, but it doesn't have a period there. It has a comma. And then it says, judge not that you... Be not judged. Now, it's not saying don't judge anybody so you're not judged. We know that's not true. 
Because the Bible says it is appointed a man once to die and then judgment. We're all going to be judged. That's not the context of the passage, but that's where the world goes. The world only sees the first two words, judge not. They don't want to hear anything about behavior or anything like that. But then if we were able to talk to them, they say, so, hey, you don't want to judge me because then you'll be judged too, which is true. We see in the passage as we go along. But Jesus talked earlier in Kingdom Makers when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about, hey, wide is the road, wide is the, the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road and narrow is the gate to everlasting life, and few will find it. So we have to make a judgment about what road we're on. We need to make a judgment of, are we, are we on the narrow road? Are we going through the narrow gate? We have a whole book in the Bible called Judges. Later on, we see Matthew 18 is one of those main chapters in the Scripture for us as believers that learns how we deal with relational conflict, things that we have to make judgments on. Heck, later on in the same passage, in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by your fruits. In other words, you have to judge. He's warning us there are going to be people that stand at pulpits like this all over the world that are not really speaking the word of God when they say, Thus saith the Lord. They're actually ravenous wolves, and they're in it for themselves. And they pervert the word of God for their own benefits. And you as believers have to have the discernment and the judgment to say, okay, I believe what he's saying because I see it in Scripture. Just like the Bereans did, right? They searched the Scriptures to find out what Paul was saying was true. And thus it is with you. You should be making judgments every week on whether what I'm saying or what Jason is saying, whoever else is in this pulpit is saying, is that rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul said this, now we command you, brothers. Now remember the question I asked at the beginning of service. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions you have received for us. You have to make a judgment call to do that. You have to make a judgment call whether somebody who claims to know Jesus Christ is actually walking after Jesus Christ. And if they're not doing it, the Bible says you can stay away from them. That doesn't mean not pray for them. That doesn't mean not witness to them. But it's saying, and Paul is saying, hey, stay away from them. He goes on in the passage, judge not, comma, that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You get what he's saying here? He's saying, why do we look at the speck in your brother's eye? It's why do we have a critical spirit of others? And I believe it's for a few reasons, because I believe criticism, first of all, the reason why we we look at that speck like the the flake of a pepper versus what he's talking about is a, a giant plank in your eye. Jesus is using sarcasm. He's painting a very picture of saying, how, how do you look at this little thing when you're missing this big thing in your own life? And he says this, I think we, I think we, we have that critical eye because pr- criticism, again, is an enjoyed activity, isn't it? We enjoy it. That's why the tabloids are so uh, bustling with business. That's why we have shows like The View and all these other shows that like to critique how everybody else thinks. The basis for it, I don't know, but that's how they do it, right? I like the one little thing I saw when I was looking at things that said that if you don't have anything nice to say about someone... No, this is what it said. If you don't have anything nice to say to anybody, sit a little closer to me here so I can hear better, right? 
Because we like to hear the juicy stuff about other people. We thrive on it. I think criticism, I think, also helps us justify the decisions we've made, doesn't it? Criticism also to justify the things that we've done throughout our lives. We rationalize our actions by pointing out the failures of others, don't we? I think criticism distracts me, most importantly, from looking at the plank in my own eye. Isn't it amazing how clearly we see someone else's life, the things that we can so easily overlook in our own lives? And last, I think, because criticism is an outlet for hurt and revenge. We feel people deserve it. They hurt me, so I deserve to hurt them. So we criticize the person who failed. As a pastor, I've been criticized a lot, you know, here and there. It's amazing when people criticize me. They're not criticizing. If you tell them, hey, we've spent a lot of time in prayer, we've labored in prayer over this, and we believe this is the Spirit's leading. If they don't like what we're doing, they usually go to me as the person. Oh, we're going to criticize Pastor Mike. Not the Spirit's leading of Pastor Mike or Pastor Jason, but them as individuals, totally disregarding where the Lord's coming from. We like to focus on a lot of things because we have our own selfish desires of people. But here's where the real message takes hold in verse 5. And this is really the crux of what Jesus was saying here. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, he's saying, we are to judge, but we're to judge rightly. Right? Or righteously. Which means there's wrong judgment and there's right judgment in Scripture. So let's go through the wrong ones before we get to the right one. The first wrong one is hypocritical judgment, right? Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. That's what it means to be a hypocrite, right? You're accusing people of the very things that you do and leaving yourself out of the judgment. So that's wrong. The second one, and I think this is really important, is where it's meant to hurt. That's hurtful. Titus 3, 2 says to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. The Bible says we're to encourage one another, we're to gently instruct, we're to do all these things with the mindfulness that it's meant to be for their good. When you deal with your kids, you don't discipline them to hurt them, at least I hope you don't. You discipline them to teach them and instruct them and to teach them a valuable lesson that there's consequences when you don't do the right thing. Important lesson to learn, right? To me, I think that when we have those hurtful, it it stems from a negativity that seems to permeate the human spirit, right? And I think that uh, the negative spirit is always denounced in Scripture. It's always wrong because it's never for the person's good that you're being negative about, and it really just also harms you. I think a negative spirit is wrong because most of the time we don't know all the facts in a situation, and we don't always try to figure them out either, right? And we tend to lean towards the negative in any situation, don't we? We always go to that right away. There's a concept in that psychology article that's talked about the halo effect. When you tend to think well of someone or focus on their positive attributes, you tend to judge more fairly. Makes sense, doesn't it? 
when you tend to focus on the negative things, you tend to be unjust in your judgment. Isn't that interesting? The human nature is always to go to the negative. Very few people focus on the positive. The next thing and reason why a negative spirit is wrong is because we are all fallible in our judgments, aren't we? How many people here haven't made a judgment in error? I remember I made a judgment. I made a big judgment with money with my wife. I've told this before. I did something thinking she'd be okay with it. I made a judgment, and it was wrong. And there's many of those. We all have those. I love the story of Sir Percival Lowell. He was a, a turn of the century, a 20th century, one of the greatest astronomers of his day. He was the first one to discover Pluto. I guess that's a big accomplishment. Um, and here's the other thing. In, in, in 1877, an Italian astronomer uh, said that he thought he saw canals on Mars, so uh, Sir Percival Lowell, he dedicated his life because when he looked through this giant, show this giant telescope, he saw all these intricate dissecting canals on Mars and he plotted them out. He spent his life plotting out these canals. The reason why it's so important is that the thinking at the time was that that shows that there was life on Mars. It influenced American culture. How do you think we got My Favorite Martian and all the sci-fi stuff? Because he was saying there's got to be life on Mars because of all these canals. And, you know, nobody, nobody questioned him. And it found its way in our early history books, which is kind of interesting. But since that time, we've had satellites and we've had the, 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 the landing on the lunar landing on Mars. And we have mapped and plotted all of Mars. And guess what? No canals anywhere. You know why? We know that Sir Percival um, Lowell suffered from a rare eye disease that made him able to see his own blood vessels in his eyes. And the Martian canals he saw were nothing more than the bulging veins in his eyeballs. It's now called a disease known as Lowell's syndrome. Interesting, huh? But for him, he thought he was right. And nobody questioned him because he was, quote-unquote, an authority. But when evidence came forward, guess what? He was wrong. And I wonder how many things in our lives have we known that we thought we were dead right on until evidence came in, and all of a sudden we knew we were wrong. we got to remember, we're, we're fallible in our judgment, which should, which should give us all a hesitation to make judgments without knowing everything. The other thing about a negative spirit I think that's really probably most should be most concerning for us is that a negative spirit has its own way of coming back on you doesn't it Proverbs says in 22 8 whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the rod of his fury will fail so too often we do reap what we sow according to scripture you sow negative things you reap negative things have you ever been around somebody that's really positive? I got to tell you, it's invigorating. I got a guy I work with, and all he is is really positive. He'll go and sit in the hospital when we're doing shoots and have hospital food and tell me about how good that burger was. And I look at him and go, really? <laughs> he stopped at my house one time because he dropped me off at home, and my wife was making tomato soup and, and uh, uh, um, grilled cheese sandwiches. And she goes, Bob, would you want one? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'll have one. He raved about how that was the greatest grilled cheese sandwich he ever had. And me and Sue looked at each other and went, really? 
But you know what? You feel good to be around him, right? He's a good guy. He's always got that uplifting spirit. It's hard to get mad at him, right? It's hard to make judgment when he does something that you don't want him to do. Man, what a difference it would all be if we were really positive about one another, right? We never complained about anything. What a different world we'd live in. What a different workplace you would have. What a different home you would have. What a different church we would have. It's interesting because we recognize there's some wrong judgments. We already talked about hypocritical. We talked about hurtful. The other one is self-righteousness, right? When we're thinking we're better than other people, you know. It says that uh, some who feel that, it's amazing, it's some who feel in the church, this is prevalent, feel their spiritual gift is, you know, that negative spirit is their spiritual gift of discernment. That somehow God always lets them know what's wrong. Every church has them. But I got to tell you, if that's a spiritual gift, uh, you have to show me that in Scripture. That doesn't mean you can't come to pastors or people and talk about things that you think may need be improving or could be done better and all those other things, but it's the spirit to which you do it and how you do it that makes the, the greatest impact, right? It's opening that receptivity. Doesn't James 4 sick God says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The problem is we usually judge people in areas where we feel the weakest, doesn't it? True. We tend to really focus on other people's issues when we know they're sort of our issues. Here's one thing I know about judgment. When I'm in a grocery store or I'm in a store and you hear some parent go ballistic on their kid or yell at their kid, your first reaction is, oh, man, are they mean, right? I I remember the first time going through Home Depot and some guy had to yell at his kid for something, and my first judgment goes, oh, man, that guy's mean, right? The next week, I was in Home Depot with my son who was young, and he was doing something that something was going to fall on him. So I yelled at him, and I grabbed him. And all of a sudden, that reminded me of the guy last week that I so quickly judged about how he raised his kid. Happens all the time to all of us. We tend to be a little more self-righteous about what we do. The last one is untrue, false judgment, right? Happens all the time. Scripture in Proverbs 19.5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. It's a tough one. A lot of times we don't know the truth, or we make up the truth, or we disregard the truth to make a judgment on somebody because that is our agenda. We see that all throughout political world today and our cultural world. Everybody's got a bias on what they're saying about everybody else. I don't care what side of the fence you're on, and it's tearing us apart. Plain and simple. It's sad because we, not, we weren't that way at one time as a nation. But verse 5 where it says, You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly see take the speck, to, to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus' instruction is really interesting. He doesn't, say, you're not, he doesn't forbid you from judging. He's telling you when you judge, make sure you're judging the right way. And he's saying the instruction of Jesus is that all judgment of others should be preceded by a period of self-examination, self-reflection, right? Paul urged his followers to test themselves to see if they were in the faith. John 7, 24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
right? Jesus is saying, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, we're not here to judge the motives of individuals, but rather their conduct, because one is inward and one is outward. We can see what people do, and in light of Scripture, we can make an assessment of whether that's something that's going to be harmful for them or good for them, so that we can speak into their lives after we've reflected on our own. That's kind of what he's saying there, right? It's supposed to be born out of love for one another, which brings us to the only right judgment we find in Scripture, that which is helpful, instructive, good for the individual. Galatians 6 one says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Right? It's amazing when you're counseling someone or when you're addressing someone about something going on in their lives, how quickly sometimes the deceit manifests itself in your life. Isn't that true? To me, I think that we need to find this one principle. When I find myself about to judge someone else, I must first stop and reflect on myself. If we would just do that before we start doing that, I think it would make a difference in terms of how we go about judging. Ephesians 4.15 says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him as the head into Christ. Did you hear that? Speaking truth in love. We're called to love. I was reading this article about how do you get a splinter out of someone's eye, right? And this doctor was talking about how difficult an operation is. There's no more, he said, there's no organ more sensitive to the eye. The minute you put your finger up to your eye, it always closes, right? And it rolls back so that you don't affect the, the, the iris of the eye. He says, whatever is required about everything else in dealing with this kind of a surgery, it's so sensitive that you got to have you know, patience, and you got to have calmness, and you got to have coolness when you're doing operations on people's eye. And it's a delicate operation. And I started thinking about this concept of judging when he talks about the speck in your eye and the plank, I mean, the speck in your brother's eye and the plank in your eye. It's pretty easy. I saw in those uh, stories of the ER, a guy who came through with a rod that went right through his eye, and out the, you know, and, but it missed everything, but how they got it out of there. It was really interesting. And then about a, three months later, I saw one where somebody had something else in their eye. It was a piece of glass, and they talked about how difficult that surgery was. And I'm thinking, wow, that one that was really huge, it was easy just to pull it out. They were just worried about bleeding afterwards and what else it hit. This other one, they were worried about messing up the eye. Let me say, if we took that kind of sympathy and calmness and coolness and delicacy when it comes to operating on someone's eye, to when we operate on someone's life to judge them, what a difference would that make? How would that turn out? We should see that in all of our judgments, we are careful not to be harmful. With sympathy and brokenness and humility, we should seek to restore those who have been overtaken in fault. Because we all know we're sinners saved by grace. We all know by the grace of God, there go I. We all know that we have that ability to be in the same spot. We all know we can overspend, overindulge, overdo, over whatever it may be, and we all could find ourselves that way. 
should help us to see things a little bit differently. When I read Galatians 1, it said, If anyone's caught in any transgression, you are spiritual to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. When we look there, that word restore, it's the same Greek word used in the Gospels for the mending of nets. In the classical Greeks, it's employed for the setting of a bone. It means to put it back in place, to make it working again. To me, blessed is the Christian whose judgments are always constructive and restorative. That's what Jesus is talking about. Get yourself right before you try to make someone else right. But let me tell you something. There's a process in there, and there's a purpose in it as well. What a wonderful family we'd have in this church if all of our judgments were brought people together, mending divisions, restoring broken lives. That is the outcome of obedience to the word of God and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes great churches. Because what does the Bible say? They'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. And when we're lovingly judging and we're lovingly doing it in a way that's helpful and restorative, it's amazing how God works in there. Our call in Scripture is to love one another because it prevents me from doing two things. And this is important here. One, judging you, it'll prevent me from judging you and then writing you off which all of us do, right? We judge people and then we walk away. We, we judge people and we have nothing to do with them. That's not what the Bible is telling us to do. That's not what Jesus was after in this passage. The second thing that love prevents us from doing is judging people and then walking away. Let me give you an illustration. My son, Christian, when he was young, we were moving pieces of wood for VBS. He was helping me grab these big four-by-eight sheets. And we got back to the church, he got a splinter in his finger and he couldn't get it out. So he came to me and he said, Dad, I can't get this splinter out, can you get it out? He was young. And I said, okay. And I went down to look at it and I couldn't see it. I didn't have my glasses. So what should I have done? Should I just left it there and said, let's keep working? (laughs) Or should I have gone and got my glasses and put them on so I can see rightly and then pull the splinter out? That's the concept there, right? I'm not to judge you and write you off. I'm also not to judge you and walk away. I'm to judge you and judge myself and in the process helping each one of us become better followers of Jesus Christ because iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. When you sharpen, there's got to be a little friction, right? But if we do it in love, guess what it leads to? Growth. Growth. That's the whole point of it. And if we think we're above and beyond somebody coming and admonishing us and warning us or teaching us in the way of the Scripture, then we are self-righteous in our own minds because that's what we're called to do. Lovingly, with gentleness. Correct our eyesight. Take away the biases. Take away our experience. Look at it as the situation dictates and ask God for wisdom and ask God for humility and sympathy to see people as he sees me and as he sees you, a sinner in need of a savior, in need of grace. And thank God he looks at us that way. And if he looks at us that way, should we not look at others that way? 
there's a good friend of mine. He struggles with a, an addiction, and it's a, it's a big issue for him. And we've gone over the years and talked about it. And I know that sometimes when I talk to him about it, I know he feels the weight of that. And I always try to say, hey, man, I got my issues. I got my things, but I'm concerned for you. I'm worried about you. I love you. I don't want to see anything bad happen to you. I'm only telling you that because you know what? I think you would do the same for me because I know you love me. It's amazing how different that is. Now, you can't change the individual. Don't ever think that. You can't be the Holy Spirit, but you can look to the Holy Spirit to work through your obedience and how we interject and, and, and work in someone's life in a corrective manner. To me, I think that Luke 17 says, pay attention to yourselves. It's amazing how we always focus on us before we do anything. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, see, when you're looking at Scripture, you always got to look at it not just in the context of the passage, but in the context of the principle and in the context of all of Scripture, Right? You can't read this passage and think I'm going to let him have it because you've got to look at it in terms of the whole totality of Scripture, which means you've got to do it in love. And you've got to look at yourself first, which it kind of prefaces. There's a lot more to it that you just can't take one verse and think you've got a doctrine. That's how cults are started, right? Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Shouldn't we do that? What a difference our disposition would be if we always looked at everybody else more, more important, more skilled, better than ourselves. Now, that doesn't apply to your kids. When they're adults, maybe. But let me tell you, to live out the Sermon on the Mount and the power of the Holy Spirit, we must remember that a spirit-filled life avoids critical judgment that seeks to injure another person. The spirit-filled believer accepts constructive judgment that gives instruction for the purpose of building up one another. By living in obedience to this passage, we build our homes, our children, our marriages, our church in a way that encourages help to mend those who have fallen into sin. It gives them the place to understand that they're accepted and they're not looked on as a failure when they fail. That this is a place where they come and can get encouraged and built back up and instructed in the Lord to be what? More like Jesus. I'm going to end with this verse. 1 John 4, 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they have God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So in the beginning of service, when I said, how many people think we're commanded to judge one? Very few people raised their hands. It's the calling of the believer. The world will tell you otherwise. Now, we're not here to judge the rest of the world. That's what God does, right? We're to judge one another because we're a reflection of Christ in the world. And the better we work with each other to, to sharpen one another, guess what? The better and stronger we are as a body of Christ to influence the world around us. By and large, the world sees us as hypocritical, judgmental people. Because in some regards, that's somewhat what we've been. 
But I think if we take the context of this scripture and we all this morning really digest it, test the spirits, test what I say. There's a lot of other verses in scripture that I didn't use today that would support, substantiate what I'm saying. You should always do that. Never take what one person says as truth just because they're respected, they're a pastor of a megachurch or whatever it may be. They're a scientist, a doctorate. A lot of those people are wrong. I believe the word of God gives us everything we need, right? For holy living, for righteous living, and for godly, productive behavior. If we just take the time to search it and understand it and always default to it, Versus someone's opinion. An important thing for us as believers to know. You ever disagree with what I'm saying? First question I'm going to ask you, well, do you disagree with how I said it or what I said? Because what I said is supported by Scripture, and I always give them the scriptural references to it. I admit sometimes I can say the right thing the wrong way, and it offends, never intended, but sometimes that does happen. But don't judge me on that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You should. You should. And constructively and positively said, you know, Pastor Mike, if you would have said it this way, it might have been a lot better. And I should be humble enough to say, you know what, you're right. You're right. And if we have those kind of attitudes with one another, I got to tell you, Mission Week was awesome. Mission Week, we talked about how great it is to see people giving their lives to serve Christ out in the mission field where we can't and won't go because of situations and circumstances, not a negative. But now they're gone. And now we're faced with the real mission of being Christ-like in a world that's not. And we've got to support one another. We've got to encourage one another. We've got to sharpen one another. We have to be Christ to one another and be willing to lovingly and gently instruct one another when appropriate. Not every day, not every week, but based on your relationship, you should be able to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're going to sing a song and reflect on your truth. One, I'm thankful for how clear it is. I'm thankful for the comprehensive understanding in Scripture, Lord. You know, it seems like you made us to judge But in our own selfishness, we judge wrongly. And I'm so thankful for your word that helps us to see the positive nature of what we can and should do to be truly light in people's lives. That we're not, Lord, creating heat in our sharpening. We're just creating friction. Help us, Lord, to take a look at this and examine our own lives and to really look and see where we're at in terms of our heart and with other people that we've judged. And, Lord, if we've done so wrong, may we go to them and just confess that and may we just look at those situations and circumstances and start to think differently about how we make assessments in the world. We have to do that. It's part of who we are as people. I have to get up every morning and decide what road I'm going to do, make judgments of people I'm going to associate with and who I'm not, who I'm going to listen to, who I'm not, all those different things. But, Lord, but help me to do so by your grace and humility and in loving kindness towards others. And I ask that you would do that for all of us here. Lord, I'd ask you to speak to our hearts. But first I'd ask, Lord, if someone right now in the sound of my voice has never realized that they're a sinner and they are under judgment, And that you, a gracious, loving, humble God, 
gave your life for them, for their sin, so that they would be forgiven and not judged based on who they are, but they would be just judged based on who you are and what you did for them. What a great story. What a picture of gentleness and love for each and every one of us. And Lord, if there's someone here that's never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I'd ask right now where they sit, that they would just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need someone to take away my sin, take away my transgressions. And Lord, I'm thankful that you went a cross on Calvary for me and you did that for me so that I may have a relationship through the Father, through you, because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And in you, I can find life abundantly, even though I'm flawed, because I'm forgiven. And for all of us who have prayed that prayer and believe in who you are, Jesus, I'd ask in the quietness of our own seats, and for some who want to come down, that's what the altar's for, that we would just confess that to you. And we'd ask people who love in tenderness and humility. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand.